In the August 10th, 1901 issue of Outlook magazine, correspondent Francis H. Nichols explored the question of anarchy as a threat to the American government in a piece called The Anarchists in America. Following the assassination of King Umberto I of Italy, how secure was the president from a similar attack? Though anarchists were fairly few in number at the close of the 19th century, just how dangerous were they? Nichols and the rest of the country had its answer only weeks later. Leon Szolgas was born in Michigan on May 5, 1873, to Polish immigrants Paul and Mary Szolgas. He was one of eight children. When he was 10, his mother passed away shortly after giving birth to his sister Victoria. By his mid-teens, Szolgas found work in a factory. But following the economic crash of 1893, his factory cut wages and the workers went on strike. He was fired for his participation and blacklisted, but he was able to get his job back a year later by applying under a different name, Fred Neiman. The experience deeply affected Shulgas, making him more aware of the social and economic injustices facing the working class. Searching for more like-minded individuals, he found his way to a working man socialist club called the Knights of the Golden Eagle. The group, however, was not radical enough for him, and he instead joined the more extreme Sela Club, where he was introduced to anarchism. In 1898, Sholgas quit his factory job and returned to his father's farm in Ohio. Sources aren't exactly clear as to why. Some suggest it was due to a respiratory illness, others speculate perhaps a nervous breakdown. But regardless of the exact reasons, the move back to the farm strained Sholgas further. He had a rocky relationship with his stepmother, and he did almost nothing on the farm to help out. He had no real friends and little interest in any romantic relationships. Instead, he kept to himself and spent his free time reading radical works. In 1900, Shulgas found an unlikely hero, Gaetano Bresci. Now I know that name isn't as well known on this side of the Atlantic, but in Italy, Gaetano Bresci is infamous. Bresci was an Italian who had immigrated to the United States, but after becoming exposed to the anarchist agenda, returned to Italy to assassinate King Umberto. 
Bresci shot Umberto four times with a 32 caliber revolver on July 29, 1900. Shulgas, who was becoming increasingly more radical in his beliefs, was enthralled by the news coverage. He followed the story closely and kept newspaper clippings about the assassination. As Bresci attributed his actions to the anarchist beliefs, it's no surprise that the event pushed Shulgas further toward the extreme. He began attending speeches by the prominent anarchist Emma Goldman and even spoke to her inquiring about further reading that he could do or how he could get more involved in the cause. Though their interactions were brief, Goldman remembered that Shulgas appeared young, ordinary, and even pleasant-looking. She introduced him to some of her comrades, but did not remain in contact with them. Shulgas's youth, paired with his awkward and reclusive nature, caught the attention of his fellow anarchists, but not in a good way. They quickly became suspicious of him, and that was further compounded by his eagerness to aid in violent plots and his conspicuous interest in joining secret anarchist societies. Many began to believe Shulgas was a spy, and even went so far as to issue a formal warning about him in the Free Society newspaper. Attention, the paper read. The attention of the comrades is called to another spy. He's well-dressed, of medium height, rather narrow shoulders, blonde, and about 25 years of age. Up to the present, he has made his appearance in Chicago and Cleveland. In the former place, he remained but a short time. While in Cleveland, he disappeared when the comrades had confirmed themselves of his identity and were on the point of exposing him. His demeanor is of the usual sort, pretending to be greatly interested in the cause, asking for names or soliciting aid for acts of contemplated violence. If this same individual makes his appearance elsewhere, the comrades are warned in advance and can act accordingly. Shulgas's exclusion from anarchist circles only compelled him to take matters into his own hands. He began to believe that even the most extreme and radical of the anarchists weren't moving quickly enough or doing enough to support the cause. If he wanted to make an impact, he'd have to do it himself. In August of 1901, newspapers began covering McKinley's planned visit to the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. Shulgas, who was at this point in Chicago, read about the upcoming visit and, seeing that a train ticket costs only a nickel, decided to pack his few belongings and make the journey to Buffalo. Arriving in the city on August 31st, Shulgas rented a room from John Nowak's boarding house at 1078 Broadway. Like Shulgas, Nowak was of Polish descent, and with so many people visiting the city that summer, he didn't initially find anything strange or suspicious about his new guest. Nearly every day until McKinley's visit, Shulgas visited the fair. Though he wasn't entirely sure what he was going to do, he was determined to do something. It wasn't until McKinley's arrival in the city that Shulgas even decided he was going to attempt to shoot the president. 
According to his written confession, Shulgas purchased the 32 caliber revolver September 4th, the same day that McKinley arrived in Buffalo. The revolver was the same gun that Bresci used to kill Umberto the previous year. His confession also divulged that he followed the president for much of the next several days, looking for an opportunity to strike. Each day, Sholgas would consult the newspapers, which published the president's itinerary. He would arrive well in advance at each location to claim the perfect spot. When McKinley gave his speech on the Triumphal Bridge, Sholgas was in the crowd right below the stage, one hand resting on the revolver in his pocket, just waiting for a clear shot. When McKinley and his party boarded the train on the Pan Am grounds, Shulgas was there waiting, just by the gate through which McKinley would have to pass, though his opportunity was blocked by a guard guiding the president through the crowd. For two days, Shulgas waited, the gun constantly at his fingertips, just waiting for an opportunity. On September 6th, Shulgas stated that he followed McKinley to Niagara Falls, but decided to leave early to stake out the location for McKinley's next visit, a reception at the Temple of Music, where he was among the first people to be let in when the event began. In his written confession dated September 6th, Shulgas recounts the events that led to that moment. During yesterday, I first thought of hiding my pistol under my handkerchief. I was afraid if I had to draw it from my pocket, I would be seen and seized by the guards. I got to the Temple of Music, the first one, and waited at the spot where the reception was to be held. Then he came, the president, the ruler, and I got in line and trembled and trembled until I got right up to him. And then I shot him twice through my white handkerchief. I would have fired more, but I was stunned by a blow in the face, a frightful blow that knocked me down. And then everybody jumped on me. I thought I would be killed and was surprised the way they treated me. The blow, Sholgas described, came from James Parker, who was standing just behind him. Shortly after the first blow, Agent Forrester from the Secret Service, as well as the guards in the vicinity, tackled the assailant to the ground and pried the gun from his hands. Agent Forrester then immediately searched his pockets looking for any additional weapons, and upon finding none, announced to his fellow guards, He's got no more guns, boys. He turned to Shulgas and asked, Why did you do it? He then gave Shulgas a blow on the nose which brought him to the ground. The contents of Shulgas's pockets were logged as being the following. A watch, a $1.54, two cigars, a string, a rubber nipple belonging to a baby's nursing bottle, and a letter addressed to the Order of the Eagles, Buffalo, New York, which bore the seal of a Cleveland Lodge and vouched for the good standing of the bearer, Fred H. Neiman. 
The president, who was still staggering from the attack, told the Secret Service agents to, quote, go easy on him. And as the majority of those present shifted their attention to the immediate care of the president, those handling the assailant carried him into the band room behind the stage. More to keep the angry crowd out than keep the prisoner in, the doors were locked. Buffalo detectives Solomon and Geary, Secret Servicemen Sam Ireland and George Foster, and Captain Damer of the Exposition Police remained inside with Shulgas. As news of the shooting spread, the crowd turned violent. They demanded the assassin so that they could lynch him themselves. Fearing the growing mob, Shulgas was thrown into the back of a carriage and quickly driven off the Pan Am grounds. He was taken directly to police headquarters for questioning where, after several hours, he confessed in full in a two-page written statement. In it, he attributed his actions to the anarchists' beliefs and said the words of Emma Goldman had encouraged him. But he was clear that he had acted alone. There was no larger plot, and he was not acting in conjunction with any organization. Outside the station, the mob grew so large, it quickly inundated the police and spilled into the surrounding streets. For hours, thousands milled throughout the city streets, cursing the assassin and celebrating when positive news was reported about the president. In Chicago, Emma Goldman was arrested and brought in for questioning, as were several of her comrades. Though they knew of Shulgas, no substantive connection could be made between them and the assassin, and they were ultimately released. Many of his fellow anarchists went on to condemn Shulgas's actions, saying they actually hurt the cause and set them back. As the week progressed, Shulgas remained in custody. Though they had his confession, no charges were formally pressed. District Attorney Thomas Penny wanted to wait until the outcome of his actions were fully realized. Only then would they pursue either murder or assault with the attempt to kill. On September 13th, Shulgas was taken from police headquarters, which were undergoing repairs, and transferred to the Erie County Women's Penitentiary. Later that same day, McKinley's health began to rapidly deteriorate. The vice president was asked to return to Buffalo from the Adirondack Mountains, and it seemed the worst was inevitable. At 2.15 a.m. on September 14th, the fate of two men was sealed. The president was dead, and Leon Shulgas would be tried for murder. Following a weekend in which the city and nation mourned, McKinley's body left Buffalo en route to Washington. Before the fallen president's train had even left the state of New York, the district attorney was presenting evidence before a grand jury of the court of Erie County. Though the president had died only two days earlier, Penny brought 28 witnesses before the jury to provide evidence of Shulgas' attempt on the president's life. Penny presented a complete and carefully laid out case, and by 4.40 p.m. that same day, the grand jury found it sufficient to indict Shulgas with murder in the first degree. 
On September 16th, he was brought to the Erie County Jail ahead of being arraigned before Judge Emery. Just before 3 p.m., two detectives, Solomon and Geary, escorted the prisoner from the jail to the courthouse via an underground tunnel running beneath Delaware Avenue. Geary was handcuffed to the assassin. Accounts state that, quote, in passing from the basement of the city hall to the courtroom on the second floor, Shulgas was compelled to pass close to the black and white bunting of which the pillars, ceilings, windows, and stairways of the hall were draped. These evidences of the city's grief apparently made not the slightest impression on the prisoner. He gave no more heed to them or the large portrait of the president draped with American flags than he did to the questions of the court or the district attorney. Papers reported that Shulgas entered the courtroom as the clock was striking three and that as many people as possible crowded into the room behind him. A murmur ran through the audience which was soon silenced by the judge's gavel. Witnesses recount that Shulgas appeared unkempt. His curly hair was disheveled and his face unshaven. The only thing that appeared clean was his clothing. Some reportedly commented that had he given more attention to his appearance, he may have actually been a handsome man. After the men had taken their proper places in the courtroom, Shulgas's handcuffs were removed and the proceedings began. Mr. Penny asked Shulgas if he had a lawyer. The defendant made a motion with his head but remained silent. The DA repeated the question and asked Shulgas if he wanted legal counsel to defend him. When he still received no answer, he asked the court on the defendant's behalf if counsel could be assigned to defend him. The arraignment would be postponed until counsel could speak on the defendant's behalf. The trial that would inevitably ensue raised a new problem. Many in the legal community feared that any lawyer that volunteered to defend Shulgas might attempt to get him off on a technicality or use the case as an opportunity for self-advancement. In an attempt to protect against the case becoming a spectacle, counsel was assigned to Shulgas. It was generally agreed by the legal community that the best candidates would be Lauren L. Lewis and the Honorable Robert C. Titus, former justices of the Supreme Court of New York State. On September 17th, with only one of his defense attorneys present, District Attorney Thomas Penny began by reading the indictment. It began. The grand jury of the County of Erie, by this indictment, accused Leon Shulgas, alias Fred Neiman, of murder in the first degree. When asked, how do you plea, Shulgas remained silent. After a moment, he moistened his lips and appeared as though he were about to speak, but ultimately said nothing. 
Penny inquired whether or not the prisoner understood that he must enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. Shulgas again refused to answer. After a moment, defense attorney Lewis interjected. He had attempted to ascertain from his client how he intended to plea, but due to his client's lack of cooperation, he was unable to know definitely. Under these circumstances, he was legally obligated to enter a plea of not guilty on behalf of his client, but he retained the right to change the plea should the defendant consult with his co-counsel. Shulgas's trial began in the state courthouse in Buffalo on September 23, 1901, only nine days after McKinley's death. The prosecution took two days and called to the stand various eyewitnesses to the shooting and the doctors who treated McKinley. The defense called no witnesses, which they attributed to Shulgas's refusal to cooperate with them. Their original plan was to attempt to plea insanity, arguing that no sane person would attempt to publicly shoot the president, surrounded by secret servicemen, guards, and police. However, an insanity plea can only be used in circumstances where the perpetrator does not understand their actions or the consequences of them. Through the testimony of his prison guards and the police who interrogated him, prosecution countered by saying, as insane as it may seem, Shulgas was perfectly cognizant of his actions, their intent, and what the consequences would be. In his 27-minute closing statement, defense counsel Lewis took great pains to praise McKinley, most likely to defend his own place in the community, rather than use that time to attempt to spare his client the electric chair. After all, there was little he could do to defend the indefensible. The case was turned over to the jury, which took but a half hour to return with a guilty verdict. One jury member stated that they would have been back sooner, but they wanted to review the evidence before conviction. On October 29, 1901, just 53 days after pulling the trigger of his gun, and 45 days after McKinley's passing, Leon Shulgas was electrocuted by three volts of the electric chair at New York's Auburn State Prison. He was pronounced dead at 7.14 a.m. The Buffalo History Museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Andrew M. Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by m and Bank and from our donors, members, and friends. Today's story was researched and written by historian Lindsay Lauren Visser and produced with support of our staff. My name's Anthony Greco, and we'll be back in two weeks with another great tale from Western New York history. So until then, take care. <laughs>